Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and today we are headed up to New York, back up to Niagara Falls, and we're going to be visiting Fort Niagara, which is an old fort that has a very long history of occupation from three different, almost four different groups of people, depending on how you look at it. On this fort sits this really amazing French castle. And we're going to be learning about what built the castle, why the castle was built, what was life like inside of the castle, and talking about the importance of the fortifications and the strategic placement of this castle. The castle itself is a very interesting artifact, but aside from that, we're also going to be learning about the garrison flag for the fort, which was from 1813, and it's an older sister to the Star Spangled Banner. If you would like to see pictures of today's episode, always feel free to visit curatorschoicepodcast.com and check us out on Facebook and Instagram. All right, let's jump right in and hear from Robert Emerson at Fort Niagara. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the best way to travel was by water. Uh, roads were abysmal. Of course, there were no, there were no uh, paved roads, railroads, airports. Uh, so the best best means of transportation was by water, and the Great Lakes offered this water superhighway, you know, and you combine that with the, the St. Lawrence River in Canada or in New York, we had uh, the Mohawk River, which, you know, flowed, it, it rose around Rome, New York, and flowed into the Hudson. Uh, so you could ascend the Mohawk River, and there was a portage called the Oneida Carry that allowed you to... Uh, portage your, your goods and your boats into the headwaters of uh, Oneida Lake and then on down to a place called Oswego, which was on Lake Ontario. So for New Yorkers, you know, it was a, the New York Central Railroad would later call their route through central New York the water level route because it didn't have to go over mountains and that was a big advantage. But it was the same thing in the in the 18th century, the, the Mohawk uh, River and the Portage and Wood Creek flowing into Oneida Lake and then on down uh, to Lake Ontario. It provided a, an easy means of, I, I won't say easy, I mean, that's re in relative terms. Yeah, easier than trying to hike through the woods all that way. Yeah, but it's, you know, if you look at what was facing people in Pennsylvania and Virginia and further south, you know, having to cross this incredible mountain barrier, um, it was a relatively easy passage from the Atlantic coast into the Great Lakes. And then once, once you get to the Great Lakes, you've got this incredible water highway. There's, there's a big problem though, and that's Niagara Falls. We're, we're fond of saying that you can't paddle a canoe up Niagara Falls and you can only do you can only go down one time. <laughs> Unless you're in a barrel. <laughs> Unless you're in a barrel. So it, it's, a, it's a big barrier in this water highway system. The French were the first Europeans to explore this area, the first documented Europeans to explore this area. And they've tried a couple of times in the, in the 17th century to erect a fort here at the mouth of the Niagara River. Because the, the critical strategic element here was uh, a trail known as the Niagara Portage. And again, that was 
That was a trail that connected the lower Niagara River, where present Lewiston, New York, stands today, with the upper Niagara River above Niagara Falls. So you're just making this 180-foot ascent of the Niagara Escarpment. You're going around the falls, and you're, you're putting your watercraft back in the river above the falls, and then you're making your way south into Lake Erie. So that portage was just a very, very strategic link in this water highway system. You know, the, the French realized pretty early, as did the English, that whoever controlled this portage really had the big trade advantage in the interior of the continent. Now, the French got here first, as we said before. They, they tried twice in the 17th century. Both of those efforts failed. Those The first four, they got careless with some fire and it burned down. Oh. Second fort was called Fort Denonville or Denonville. And yet they left a hundred men here over the winter of 1687, 88. And when they returned in the spring, only a dozen of them were left alive. Oh my gosh. It was just so far out. And at that time, the uh, Haudenosaunee people were very hostile to the French. So, you know, that this, this outpost was really isolated. But uh, as the 18th century came in, the uh, relations after 1701 improved. There was a big peace treaty in that year. And gradually the French began to extend their influence. They, they built a trading post at the lower landing of the Niagara in 1720. And then, then they began to maybe into lobby the, the Haudenosaunee uh, or five nations at that point, soon to be six, uh, they began to lobby them for a stronger outpost. And in, uh, in 1726, they began construction of the French castle, which was a stone, very large stone house that, uh, that the French claimed was not a, not a fort, but it was well fortified. It had thick stone walls, it had bars on the windows, and it had most importantly, it had on the third floor, it had dormer windows that allowed soldiers to fire down on any attackers that might approach uh, the, the Fort Niagara. The castle was the only building here for a couple of decades, and then the French began to expand and expand and expand until when the French and Indian War broke out in uh, the 1750s, they really expanded the fort and pretty much to its current size. I'm really curious. So... In the early, early days when the French were originally trying to come over here and gain control of that water highway, was it just because they were getting a lot of furs that they could sell or was it for the sake of exploration? Like, why was this area so important to the French during that time? Right. Well, the, the fur trade could be very lucrative. It was, it was very, um, the fur trade was very risky, uh, but it could also pay big rewards. And of course, it went through phases. Sometimes there were huge profits to be made, and other times, when the European market was glutted with furs, it wasn't such a such a money making uh, operation. But um, in general, the, the the trade, the fur trade, was was very important. It's the first big business on the Great Lakes, and it involved basically a, a transatlantic network of suppliers and credit and. You know, it was it was it was pretty sophisticated operation, and of course the the French were interested in protecting this. The English were interested in in uh, getting their hands on some of those furs. <laughs> you know, so yeah, and what what went along with the fur trade 
which was very important to the French, was Native American alliances. If you have a if you have a, a loyal trading partner and war breaks out, they're likely to support you rather than the enemy. Uh, and New France depended heavily on Native allies. Uh, when you when you look at the when you look at the uh, population differences between the English colonies uh, along the Atlantic seaboard, and then you look at the population of New France, you're looking at being outnumbered maybe 20 to one. The French are going to depend heavily on native allies and, and the trade is a vehicle to establish those alliances. It was very important on both of those, both economic and political grounds to maintain, you know, a string of forts at these very critical locations, mainly on the waterways. Is that why they said that their fort was more of not a fort because i mean if you look at it that the french castle if you look at the french castle i mean it does just look like a, a really cool house like you and it's not until you walk inside that you really see that it is meant to be a fortification center really so is that why they were trying to maintain this positive relationship with the native americans but also being able to defend their strategic position well right the um the, the Seneca nation was, that was the nation that was closest, that lived closest to Fort Niagara. And they were opposed to the construction of a stone fort. Um, and in fact said so. And so the French, the French were, um, were not going to build a standard, maybe four bastion stone fort because of native opposition. So what they did was they, they built what they call the house of peace. This is a place where you can come and, and trade with us. You can, you can send, uh, emissaries here and, and we can, we can have councils. So it was deliberately designed as a, as an inoffensive looking structure. So they probably didn't pull anything over the Seneca. They probably knew what was happening underneath it all, but it was kind of this situation where it sounds like they both might have had some benefits from from the French taking this position and then from the Seneca allowing them to stay there. And the main purpose was to kind of keep away the English. Is that correct? Well, you know, the, the Native American neighbors, you know, it was obviously to their advantage if there was uh, trade going on here. This was a place they could come to trade. So that was desirable from, from their perspective. And that was one of the big French you know, selling points that the French offered was, well, you know, we'll, we'll come here and we'll build this house and you can come here to trade. Uh, so that was an attractive feature for native people. And let's face it in the early years of Fort Niagara, you know, this, this castle was designed to house a garrison of about 40 soldiers. There are thousands of native warriors within, you know, marching distance of Fort Niagara. So 40 soldiers are not going to, you know, not going to pose too much of a threat. So, you know, I think probably what the native people thought was that it's a trade-off, you know, we have to put up with the, this garrison in our backyard, but we also get, get a place to trade out of it. And if we really want to, we can, we can wipe them out. Ironically, the, the trade at Fort Niagara was never really great because, uh, natives coming from the West, once they, 
completed that difficult portage around Niagara Falls, they would just take their boats and row right past Fort Niagara and they would go down down the lake to Oswego where the bridge had a trading post and a fort. And the British goods were cheaper and of some say of better quality. And so the French here would watch the, the natives just go right by Fort Niagara down to Oswego. And that was a constant thorn in the side of the French here at the fort. They were always trying to figure out a way to keep these native traders from, from going to the English further east. It's a lot further journey, but you got a, a much better deal for the, for your fur harvest at Oswego than you did here at Niagara. So going back a little bit more to the French castle. So when I asked your artifacts that you wanted to say, I thought you were very clever because you said you wanted to talk about your largest artifact, which is actually the French castle. I was reading online. It's one of the oldest buildings on this side from, I mean, not just from the French, but like from anything. Well, right. It's, uh, it was probably the most sophisticated building west of Montreal in the mid 18th century. What made it so sophisticated? Well, first of all, it's, it's a, it's a big stone building and out here on the Pays de Deux or upper country, you know, a stone building of that size is very unusual. It has three floors. It had quarters for officers. There was a commandant's apartment, an officer's mess, and then rooms for the lieutenant and ensigns that were here. There was an officer's kitchen. And then a couple, there were a couple of barracks rooms for enlisted soldiers. There was a chapel. And oftentimes there was a recollet uh, priest here who provided religious services for the troops. It had a well inside so that the soldiers could get water without, without going outside. It had a lot of storage space because, you know, basically your supply line is cut off from November through April. So you have to have a lot of storage for provisions, provisions and such. And it had a trade room and a bakery. So a lot of functions were squeezed into this big stone building. So that's why I say it was a, a fairly sophisticated structure for its time and place. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty incredible. And the soldiers who would have been staying there, I mean, was it like a situation where they were stationed here for a couple of years? Was it rotational? Did they have any women inside the fort area? Well, for most of the uh, history of the French castle during the French regime, the military organization that, that garrisoned the fort was the Compagnie Franche de la Marine, or the Independent Companies of the Navy. These companies were raised in the 1680s to protect French colonies overseas. They were under the authority of the, Na the French Navy because it was an overseas issue. And they were spread out in small detachments all over New France. So here at Fort Niagara, you would have probably three or four officers and about 40 men. And then uh, in the wintertime, you would draw a lot of those men away, send them back to Montreal so you didn't have to feed them. But so the garrison strength would fluctuate. The officers that were here were mainly uh, seigneurs that had been born in Canada. They were, they were native French Canadians. They were the upper class of the, of the colony. 
the soldiers they brought from France. Um, they did not want to take farmers away from their their uh, occupations, uh, and they wanted to bring more more people to the colonies. So they were recruiting their enlisted soldiers in France, bringing them over. So your enlisted men, you know, they're going to be maybe people who were economically challenged back in metropolitan France. You know, you'd have to you really have to have a reason to want to leave to come over here to, to North America. So that's what you're looking at. You're looking at officers who are of the, of the upper class here in, in the colony, and you're looking at enlisted men who were uh, recruited in France and shipped over here. So that, that was pretty much your garrison. So the garrison was made up of these different elements. You asked about women. There were not many, but there were a few. There's a, there's a, a female housekeeper mentioned in a roster in 1749 and a French housekeeper mentioned on a roster of civilian employees that were here. When the fort surrendered, there were a handful of, of women and children here during the July of 1759. So yeah, there were, there were a few. And one of the most interesting women that, that was here was in the early 1750s, the commandant was a man by the name of Claude Pierre Picoli de Contrecoeur. Wow. <laughs> and his wife and daughters uh, lived here at, at Fort Niagara with him. And that was very unusual. Most of the commandants who served here left their wives at home just because it was such a, it was such a hellish trip to get here. And then harsh living once you got there. So, but he, uh, he brought his wife here and they lived quite happily here in the, in the castle, uh, until he was, he was ordered to the Ohio Valley at the outset of the French and Indian war. And this upset his wife very much. And she eventually, you know, went back home to the St. Lawrence, but we have some letters between the two of them and they were very devoted to each other. And she had, she had some real, some real issues when he was sent into this Ohio Valley campaign. You know, I, I think from reading the letters that you know, her health was, was broken when, when they were parted and, you know, she was really had, uh, you would maybe call it a nervous breakdown today, but it's very interesting to read these letters between, uh, Captain Contracur and his wife. You have the, the French and Indian war that happens. The original people who build up the fort and are occupying the fort are the French. And then you have the English that come in. Well, right. And, and actually there's, you know, there's more than that because before the French even got here, the, um, there was a Seneca hunting and fishing camp here. Oh, at the fort. Well, well the location of the fort. Yeah. And it was just, it was just seasonal though. Uh, it wasn't permitted. Then, you know, the French are here, the French lose the fort in 1759. The British took over all the French forts on the Great Lakes. And then they're here until 1796 you know, long, a, a long time. And in fact, the British held the fort during the American Revolution. And that's probably when Fort Niagara experienced its greatest uh, strategic importance during the Revolutionary War. Uh, the British used the fort to um, recruit native allies. They used the fort to supply uh, raiding parties that went into the back country of New York and Pennsylvania. And these were devastating raids that tied up a lot of resources for, from uh, 
Washington's army and the state militias. And the other thing that made Fort Niagara very important during the American Revolution was it was a it was a refuge for loyalists and natives who you know were fleeing their either settlements or villages. And they would come to Fort Niagara during the winter. 1779, 1780, the Continental Army launched a, a very large scale invasion of uh, Haudenosaunee territory. This was in retaliation for many, many raids that had been going on, on the, as I said, before the New York and, and Pennsylvania frontiers. So the it's called the Sullivan-Clinton campaign, and it its purpose was to devastate the country of the Six Nations. They hoped that it would drive the, the Six Nations further away from the frontiers so that they would be unable to uh, mount these raids. But the upshot was that, or actually the outcome was that the uh, the uh, Haudenosaunee had to flee their, their towns and villages, and a lot of them ended up at Fort Niagara. So the British were completely unprepared for this influx of refugees. And there were thousands of people died that winter from uh, exposure and starvation because of this situation. So Fort Niagara is, is during the American Revolution, it's held by the British. It's a very strong position and it has uh, impacts on the frontier from really New Jersey to Kentucky as these raids are going out from, uh, from here and attacking all along the frontier. How defensible is the fort itself in structure? Well, um, it depends on when you're talking about. Uh, they tended to let things go uh, between threats. So, uh, for example, uh, when the French really fortified the, the fort, in 17, between 1755 and 57, they're, they're expanding the fort from just the castle and a few buildings surrounded by a wooden stockade to these, you know, this massive earthen fort that some say was, you know, at its time, the most sophisticated earthen fort in, in North America when it was built. So at that point, um, you know, the fort was fairly defensible. By 1759, uh, when the siege starts, uh, they haven't really kept up with you. They haven't finished many of the uh, fortifications. So uh, the French, when they find out that Fort Niagara might be a target, they have to scramble and, and try to, to finish some of the, the fortifications that they had, they had not finished in 1757. And it takes the British 19 days. Uh, one of the longer sieges in North America. So at that point, uh, even though the, the fort wasn't finished and there were, there were complaints that, um, you know, the, they had not finished a lot of this work, uh, they still held out for a long, long time. After the British take over uh, in hostilities in here in North America in 1760, and so what happened, the, the treaty that ends the, the French and Indian War signed in 1763. And so what happens? Well, what happens in peacetime, uh, defense budgets get cut. Mm -hmm. 
So now, you know, now the fortifications are not being maintained and the British are trying to figure out how we're going to, how are we going to defend this fort with smaller garrisons? So they, they end up building two stone redoubts uh, at either end of the, the fort's main wall. The idea was that, you know, you put a couple of dozen men in each of those redoubts. On the third floor, there's a gun deck that has artillery and and certainly fire muskets from there as well. So nobody's, even though you, at this point, you can walk right over the fort's wall. It's not a, really a barrier anymore. Uh, you would think twice be before you walked between the fire in these two buildings. So, um, you know, the British, that's the way they address the, the deterioration of the, of the fort's wall. And at that point, the fort's wall was sawed uh, in, in earth. It, uh, when you visit the fort today, it's got brick revetments, but those were constructed during the civil war. So th those weren't here in the 18th century. So the British, um, found a way with fewer men to make the fort more defensible. And however, in, uh, in 1779, then again, when the Sullivan campaign is, is on the march and they're afraid it's, it's going to get as far as Fort Niagara, there's another flurry of activity to, uh, strengthen the defenses here. So it seems to run in cycles. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets let go when there's no immediate threat and then everyone has to scramble when, when it's time to face an attack. So we know what happens during the Revolutionary War, but what happens to the fort? Well, according to the treaty that ended the revolution, all of these border forts were supposed to be uh, turned over to the United States. But there are, there are disputes over the tree that go on for 13 years. And so the British hold on to uh, a number of these border forts, including Fort Niagara. So until 1796, the British were here at, at Fort Niagara. And in 1796, under the terms of, a, of the Jay Treaty of 1794, the fort gets turned over to a U.S. garrison. The U.S. marches in, the British march out. The British go across the Niagara River into what's now uh, Ontario, and they construct their own fort, which they name Fort George. So now we have two forts at the mouth of the Niagara River, and they're well within artillery range of each other. So what happens to the fort during this time? Is it kind of just used as a we won situation, or is it also continued to be a defensible fort? Well, it's, uh, it's at the end of a a long supply line, let's put it that way. And when the war of age 12 breaks out, it's declared in June of, of 1812, we have some descriptions of what the fort was like at that point. And they're, they're not very complimentary. Uh, DeWitt Clinton described the fort as being in a ruinous condition. Uh, there was a woman here in the garrison who said you had to be careful when you walked from one building to the other because of the number of rattlesnakes that were found on the parade ground. So there's a number of accounts in 1812 that, you know, the fort wasn't in, in very defensible condition and could be easily taken. So again, the American garrison now has to scramble to beef up the fort's defenses. By the fall of... 1812, the fort is going to be involved in combat. One of the 
one of the objectives for the, the eighteen twelve campaign is to get a foothold in Canada. And they, they're going to concentrate about 6,000 soldiers at Lewiston, which is about seven miles south of here. They're going to cross the river, and their hope is to get a, a, a beachhead in Canada before the winter comes on. So what you get is the Battle of Queenston Heights. And it is an utter disaster for the American army. The campaign fails. There's a lot of people taken prisoner, uh, a lot killed, and the U.S. forces have to retreat back to the U.S. side. But at the same time that that battle is going on, as a diversion, Fort Niagara and Fort George trade um, an artillery trade artillery fire. And because Fort George sits a little bit higher than Fort Niagara, it had the advantage. And in fact, you know, they pummeled Fort Niagara in that October bombardment, but they didn't, they didn't cross the river and, and capture the fork. So the U.S. garrison was able to reoccupy the fort. And then there's a truce. Um, the truce is to last 30 days. Both sides are going to lick their wounds. But in November, the guns open back up again. There's another day-long bombardment, which could be heard 35 miles away in Buffalo. And what came out of this bombardment was a very interesting story about one of the soldiers' wives, whose name was Betsy Doyle. Her husband had been captured at Queenston, and she was not feeling very uh, happy about the British at this point. And so she spent the day of this bombardment running red-hot cannonballs called Hot Shot from a fireplace downstairs in the castle all the way up these spiral stairs, handing off the red-hot shot. She would be using tongs to carry these red-hot cannonballs handing them off to an artillery crew that was on the roof of the castle and firing that hot shot across the river at Fort George. Of course, a red-hot cannonball is going to set fire to any wooden structure that it comes in contact with. So that was the whole, the whole point, to try to set Fort George on fire. She behaved so bravely that she was written up in the Commandant's report. Colonel George McFeely compared her to Joan of Arc, uh, for her actions that day. I remember when we were there that Fort George had the height advantage over Fort Niagara. So there was something to do with they removed the roof off the top of the castle. Is that when they were using the red hot buckshot? Yes, that was after that, after the October bombardment. In order to equalize the height of the American guns, they removed the roofs from the castle and the redoubts. So now, um, these are elevated gun platforms. Of course, that doesn't do any good whatsoever for the structural integrity of the buildings because the rain is coming right down the, you know, on the inside of them. But that was the, that's what they did. They, they removed the roof so that they could get the American guns up a little higher and, and fight for George on, on, its, on equal terms. The next May, uh, May of 1813, the American Navy on Lake Ontario and an army decides to capture Fort George, which they do very successfully. And then through the summer of 1813, there's a couple of reverses on the Canadian side. And so by the end of the year, the U.S. Army is back at Fort Niagara. In doing so, though, the American elements uh, burn the town of Newark which is Niagara-on-the-Lake today. 
they evacuate the ruins of Fort George. They burned the town uh, and this enraged the British. So the British decided to retaliate. So uh, on the night of December 18th and 19th, 1813, they crossed secretly crossed the river. They marched down to Fort Niagara. They caught the garrison here completely by surprise. The garrison was asleep and the British seized the fort at the point of the bayonet in about 30 minutes. And now, you know, now the British have got Fort Niagara back again and they held it to the end of the war. It wasn't until May of 1815 that again, by treaty, the U.S. reoccupied Fort Niagara, but U.S. has been here ever since. So coming back to where we are today, I mean, you guys have done a fantastic job. It looks great there. And it seems like you guys have made everything very structurally sound. So what, what do you guys do at the fort today? Our mission is really threefold. We, preservation is, is the number one. We're, work, we're working every day to make sure that these buildings are here in the future. We've got some projects going on right now for masonry restoration. We're repointing some of the stone buildings. We've got a new roof planned for the French castle in the coming year. We're always watching that Lake Ontario shoreline. We, we've got a project going with the Army Corps of Engineers and New York State Parks to to strengthen the uh, the shoreline east of the fort so that we we have to stop some erosion that's going on there. So preservation is a big thing. The French castle will turn 300 in five years. So maintaining a 300 year old building is, is a challenge. Especially one on the, on the edge of water. Exactly. We had a, a couple of winters ago, uh, we had some high lake levels in Lake Ontario and through wave action, it was, it was very cold. So the, the entire north face of the castle up to the roof, which was a third floor level was covered with ice. Oh, it's, it's very, weather here can be very brutal in the winter. So preservation is, is one, uh, one of our missions. The other is education. And we, we do a lot of education programs. We have, we have daily living history programs, as I said before, some more in the summer than in the winter, but we do have programs all year. We, we do reenactments. We, in particular, we reenact the siege of 1759 during July. And we have a lot of living history events through the year. We have a, a lantern tour in the fall where we share some of the spooky stories about the fort. The third, the third element is collecting. And we have a, we have a collection of about a hundred thousand artifacts. Many of those artifacts have been recovered by archeologists here at the site. So they're they have a direct connection to the history of the site. You guys also have a museum on site. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the museum that you guys have, because, I mean, it's really incredible that you have this entirely large outdoor space that is a fort. You have a castle. You even have a lighthouse. And then you also have a museum. We call the, what we call the visitor center as an interesting history. The building was built as a commissary warehouse by the United States Army in 1939. So just before World War II, when the Army left here uh, during the 1960s, it evolved into a, a, a lumber storage warehouse for, for state parks. And so in the 1990s, when Old Fort Niagara acquired its, its 18 
13 garrison flag. This was a huge flag. It's 24 by 28 feet. It's older than the Star Spangled Banner. It has a connection to the Star Spangled Banner. Maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But uh, we had this huge original flag that we had no place to exhibit. So some of the board members and staff started to talk about maybe adaptively reusing that structure as a visitor center. And so we started raising money. It was about a $7 million project. And in 2006, we were able to, we converted that building into a, into a museum climate controlled space where we could safely exhibit artifacts in the center of that museum is a huge climate controlled room where the, the 1813 flag resides now. So tell us more about the sister to the Star Spangled Banner. So the, um, there was an army, a uh, United States army officer named George Armistead and Armistead loved flags and just about everywhere he went, he, he was careful to order a, a big garrison flag for, for that post. A lot of these army posts that were particularly out on the frontier lacked garrison colors. So he ordered a couple of flags for Fort Niagara when he was posted here and he was posted here on and off in the early 19th century. But we have, uh, we have the original garrison colors probably made about 1809, so older than the Star Spangled Banner. So George Armistead served here at Fort Niagara under that flag during the May of 1813 bombardment of Fort George. Armistead did such a good job commanding U.S. artillery that he was given the honor of taking the captured British flags to President Madison in Washington. So he did that. And when he gets to Washington, he's given command of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. So one of the first things he does when he goes to Fort McHenry is he orders a flag, a garrison flag for Fort McHenry. And that is the Star Spangled Banner. But he served under Fort Niagara's flag first. And that's the connection between the two of them. When you say they're garrison colors, does that just, is that just another way to say flag or is it specific to the colors that are on the flag? What does that mean? Well, uh, a garrison, it's a flag that flies over a fort and they're usually quite large. Uh, so they can be seen from far away. It's how you tell who's in, who's in control of the fort. So it's interesting. The flag is 15 stars and 15 stripes which was the, uh, during war in 1812, that was the official flag pattern that goes back to 1795. And when they had decided to add a, a stripe and a star for each new state in the union, but they fell a little bit behind because by the war of 1812, there's 18 states, but still only 15 stars and stripes. But I guess they have more important things to worry about when you're at war. So, um, the flag is 24 by 28 feet. Um, it's the second oldest flag in New York state. It's one of only about 20 known surviving examples of stars and stripes dating before 1815. And what happens to it during that December 19th 
attack by the British, they seized Fort Niagara's flag. And this was a big deal, you know, to capture the enemy's flag. So they took it back to, to first off to Canada. The British commander in Upper Canada was a guy named Gordon Drummond. And um, his aide took the flag to Quebec, and then it got sent over to Britain, where it was presented to the Prince Regent. And then the Prince Regent then returned it to Drummond. Drummond uh, hung the flag in the family castle. And in the 1990s, this was McGinch Castle in Scotland. But in the 1990s, the family agreed to sell the flag back to Old Fort Niagara. So we purchased it. We had a fundraising campaign. We purchased the flag and it came back. And it was, it was sent to People's Island and to the conservation labs there. And then it was brought back here to, to Western New York. And that's what got the whole visitor center concept started because there was no place to display it. So we're very happy today to have the flag on exhibit. Well, thank you so much for being willing to meet with me through Zoom and share with me and all my listeners the amazing story of this fort who has been through so much. We appreciate the, uh, you know, the coverage. Uh, the more people that know about us, the better off we are. Thank you so much for listening. And I do have some pretty exciting personal news. I have been trying to expand my podcasting work, and I applied to create a segment for the Dog Podcast Network. And I created the most recent one. It just came out today, and it is called Conservation Canines. It is on the podcast Dog Edition. And basically what we do is talk about the amazing ways that dogs are helping humans and wildlife fight for conservation. So it's pretty cool. I'm so excited to have it out there in the world. If you would like to give it a listen, please do. I'll include a nice link in the show notes for today's episode. But we talk about Karelian bear dogs and how they are basically hazing black bears in Nevada to try to keep them out of populated areas and keep them safer. And we also talk about Karelian bear dogs work in Alaska and in Japan. And then we even go into Hawaii, where we talk about how some super sniffing dogs are working to sniff out invasive species like devil weed and the koki frog. So it's pretty good. It's my episode, so please go check it out. Of course, I worked with an amazing team at Dog Edition. If you would like to support the podcast Curator's Choice, you can always become a patron supporter, though just listening in and sharing it with your friends is fantastic, and I appreciate it every single time. For the bonus episode that will be available for patrons is going to be Derek Schultz, who is a historic interpreter at Fort Niagara. So we sat with him and he shared with us what he does as, as an interpreter. He gave us a really amazing musket demonstration and he goes through and kind of shares all of the situation with musketry is because I really had no idea. So he goes into detail about that and it's a pretty great episode. So look for that coming out later this month. 
And then the February bonus episode for Patreon was Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin by Megan Rosenblum. And it's a pretty neat episode as well. So check those out. And thank you so much for being a listener. Tune in in the next two weeks when we publish the next episode, which is going to be here in Maryland. And it's going to be at the Chesapeake Railway Museum. So if you're into trains or into learning new things about history, please join us. Thank you so much for listening.